Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7 as we continue through our study in the book of Exodus. Most of you are probably familiar with the Indiana Jones movies starring Harrison Ford. In the first installment of the movies, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know there's that famous scene where Indiana Jones has to descend into what's called the Well of Souls in Egypt. And he goes down there and he's confronted by all of these cobras. And as Steven Spielberg was making the film, they originally had a thousand snakes to cover the ground to make it look scary. And it wasn't enough for the, film, for the filmmaking. So they had to bring in 7,000 snakes. Some of you are just like, ooh, as I even say that. And as he falls into the pit, there's a glass sheet that they used in the filming between him and he comes face to face with the cobra. But the cobra got so agitated that it actually spewed venom at the glass sheet as Harrison Ford was there. And there's that famous line that Indiana Jones says, and you know what it is, I hate snakes. Now, I know some of our young adults hate snakes as well because this past week in our small group, we had a long discussion about snakes. And so some of you don't like snakes. It could be any type of fear that you have, but some people just don't like snakes. Now, why do I bring up Indiana Jones, snakes, cobras, the deserts of Egypt, all these different things? Well, because today our passage of Scripture focuses on the showdown between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh's magicians, and it centers upon a snake. Now, in ancient Egypt during this time, they were fascinated with snakes. They were scared of snakes. They lived in fear of snakes because cobras were around them all the time. So what they did in that culture, that ancient culture, was they would wear amulets. Either around their necks or around their wrists, they would wear amulets of snakes to ward off the snake goddess named Aphophis. It was the serpent goddess of evil. Now, the Pharaoh, on his headdress, and you've probably seen pictures of King Tut, there was the cobra, the snake, on the headdress of the Pharaoh, the royal symbol. The Egyptians also built a temple in honor of the snake goddess Wajet. It was represented by hieroglyphics of the cobra. So all throughout Egypt, snakes ran rampant. They worshipped snakes. They were in fear of snakes. Their pharaoh had a snake on his headdress. So as we turn to Exodus chapter 7... Verses 8 through 13, it's all about snakes. I hate snakes. Are you ready to watch it unfold? Exodus chapter 7, 8 through 13, a short passage of Scripture. 
Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When the Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord said. Now, this is a prelude to the ten plagues that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. And you may just look at this little episode about snakes and staffs, and you may just gloss over it. But really what this does is it illustrates for us a reality of something deeper going on than just Moses and Aaron against Pharaoh. This is a picture of spiritual warfare, of demonic forces and God against Satan. Now here's a historic detail that I left out about snakes and about the Pharaoh. When the Pharaoh would be inaugurated and he would ascend the throne and he would put on the headdress that had the cobra on it, he would make an alliance with the serpent God to give him power. And he would recite this confession as he sat down for the very first time on the throne. Here's what the Pharaoh would say. O great one, O magician, O fiery snake, let there be terror of me like the terror of thee. Let there be fear of me like the fear of thee. Let there be awe of me like the awe of thee. Let me rule a leader of the living. Let me be powerful a leader of spirits. What's Pharaoh doing when he ascends the throne? He's pledging himself to Satan. He's making an alliance with the demonic. He's asking the serpent God to give him supernatural power. Revelation chapter 12 verse 9 says this. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who's called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Satan is known as the great red dragon, as the deceiver, as the serpent. So there's more to this passage than just meets the eye. This is, this is not merely a competition between Moses and Aaron's staff and the magician's staff. This is illustrative of spiritual warfare and the demonic, and Satan. And so here's the big idea for our message this morning. Here's the main theme. The Lord rescues his people from the bondage of Satan. The Lord rescues his people from the bondage of Satan. Now what I want to do this morning is I want us to explore four realities that 
this passage of Scripture and the, and the totality of the Bible teach about Satan, about spiritual warfare, about demonic. I can't teach everything there is to teach about it, but I want just to, to see how this passage illustrates some themes related to spiritual warfare. Four realities this morning. So here's reality number one, and it's pretty obvious, but I think we need to just express it. Reality number one, we wage a spiritual battle against a real enemy, and his name is Satan. It's a real battle. We have a real enemy. He has a name. It's Satan. Now, in this passage of Scripture, some scholars have explained away what Pharaoh's magicians were doing. They would say, as you read the commentaries, it was sleight of hand. It was like a modern-day illusionist like David Copperfield. They were using parlor tricks to, to somehow fake it. Well, that's one way to interpret this passage of Scripture. But look at verse 11. Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and the magicians, and they did the same by their secret arts. Their secret arts. I believe that they were actually inspired by the demonic to do what they did. This was not just sleight of hand, a little magic trick. I believe they were satanically inspired to do what they did. Ephesians 6, 10-12 says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The Bible says the devil has schemes. He has tactics. And it says we're embroiled in a spiritual battle, a spiritual Warfare. This is the reality of the Christian life, that we are in a spiritual battle. Now, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, said this. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors in which we can fall when we talk about Satan and demons. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So there's two ways you can, oppose, you can approach the demonic. No such thing as demons. No such thing as a devil. There, there's, there's not anything there. That's one extreme. The other extreme is there's a demon behind every bush. There's a demon in the, in the sound system. There's, there's demons all over the place, and you have an unhealthy fascination with demons. Both of those extremes are wrong. So let me give you a few Bible verses that describe the character, the tactics and the nature of our enemy, the devil. You need to know this. The Bible teaches a lot about who our enemy is. And it starts in Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? He's crafty. He distorts God's word. He makes you question God's word. What did Jesus say about the devil? John 8, 44. 
He's talking to the Pharisees here. You are of the father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's will. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. He's crafty. He's a murderer. He's the father of lies. His very nature is to lie, to deceive. Jesus says in John 12, 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. God has given Satan permission to be the ruler of this world. This, the ruler of this world system. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the ruler of this world. He's the deceiver. He's the murderer. He's the liar. He's crafty. And then Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Seeking someone to devour. Since Satan is real, the battle is real, the spiritual warfare is real, what does the Bible tell us to do? That's very simple. It's a very simple answer. It's not, it's not easy to do. The Bible says to stand firm. Four times in the Ephesians, go back and read Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Four times in that passage of Scripture, the Greek word stand shows up. It's the key word. We stand. We don't go on the offensive and try to win the battle. The battle's already been won. We stand in the victory of what Jesus has already won. We stand in the full armor of God. We put on the full armor of God and we stand our ground in the truth of Scripture. James 4, 7 says this, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The, the word resist that James uses is the same Greek word that Paul uses for stand in Ephesians. Stand. Resist the devil. Stand against the devil. He will flee from you. Stand. The victory has already been won. We don't win the victory. We stand in what Christ has already won for us by putting on the full armor of God. That's a whole other message that I could preach. But I'm not. You can go back and listen online, or you can go back to, 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 to former teachings that we've done about standing in the, the, the armor of God, but we're going to keep moving this morning to reality number two about Satan. Satan wants your heart to embrace idols. Satan aims at nothing less than your total destruction the hardening of your heart toward the gospel, and for you to give into idolatry so that your eyes are fixed on the idol and not on Jesus. That's what Satan wants you to do. He wants you to give your heart completely to idols, to be consumed by idols, to be obsessed by idols. What did Pharaoh do? Pharaoh had given in to false idols, had he not? He pledged himself to demonic forces. 
He's not bowing down to the great I am, the God of Israel. He's stubborn, he's rebellious, he's steeped in idolatry. And that's what Satan wants for every single person. Do you realize Satan wants for you to be blinded to the gospel so that you'll embrace idols, so that you'll have a hard heart? 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What does Satan hate more than anything? Jesus and the gospel. He absolutely, seethingly hates Jesus and the gospel. And so he is going to try to blind the minds of unbelievers from seeing that. Because when they see Jesus in the gospel, they will see Christ as glorious, as beautiful, and they will give their hearts to Christ. And if they give their hearts to Christ, they're no longer giving their hearts to an idol. And God says, I will have no equals. What does God say in Isaiah 42.8 about being a jealous God? Isaiah 42.8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. God's not going to share his glory with an idol. Now, when Aaron throws down the staff and the snake swallows up their staffs, look at verse 12. Each man cast down his staff. They became serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up, consumed, gobbled up their staffs. That's a dramatic symbol. What's the symbolism there? Pharaoh, you may think you're the top dog. Pharaoh, you may think you're sovereign. Pharaoh, you may be in love with yourself, but God is going to rule over you. His snake's going to gobble up yours. God is sovereign over Pharaoh. See, where's Pharaoh's hope? Where's Pharaoh's identity? In being the Pharaoh. It's all about him. It's all about his kingdom. It's all about his idolatry. And God confronts that head on. God says to Pharaoh, if you're going to elevate yourself as supreme, I'm going to swallow up that up. So here's what God does to you and me. God confronts our idols head on. Whatever is in your heart that you hold on to, whatever it is that you obsess about, whatever takes over your imaginations, whatever it is that you are obsessing over that's not Jesus, that's an idol. And God confronts that and says, I will have no equals. I want your heart. Do not give your heart to idols. There's an interesting passage of Scripture in Ezekiel Chapter 14, verse 3. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? They've taken idols into their hearts. What idol do you have deep in your heart? All of us have idols. The question is, what's lurking deep in our heart? What do you, what do you fantasize about? What are, you, what are you consumed about? What are you obsessed over? What, what captures your heart and your thoughts and your imaginations? 
And if that were to be taken away from you, if that were to, to stop being in your life, you would fret, you would despair, and you would want to give up living because that's been taken away. That's an idol. So what do you do? We need to repent and get rid of it. Get rid of the idol. Ezekiel 20, verse 7. I said to them, this is God, cast away, get rid of the detestable things from your eyes that they feast on. Every one of you. And do not defy yourself with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Cast these idols away. Get rid of the idols. So the battle is real. Satan is real. We need to stand in the full armor of God. But number two, Satan wants your heart, and he wants your heart to embrace idolatry. He wants you to be blinded to the glory of who Jesus is. That's one of his tactics. Okay, reality number three this morning. Satan attempts to destroy the church through seductive counterfeits. In this Exodus passage, the magicians can only copy what God is doing. They're performing counterfeit miracles. Now, they're demonically inspired, but they're counterfeit miracles. I like what Phil Riken has said in his commentary. This is a great quote. He says, quote, Satan can only corrupt, never create. Satan is always a counterfeiter, never an innovator. He's like the annoying little brother who never comes up with any ideas on his own, but always copies his older siblings. You ever thought of Satan as the annoying little brother that never comes up with anything on his own? He's always copying what God does. It's always a cheap substitute. We've been talking about this on Wednesday nights in our Revelation study. But sometime in the future, we don't know yet, there will be a man of lawlessness. Otherwise known as the Antichrist. And when he comes on the scene, Paul is very specific about what he will be doing as the Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-10. through 10. The coming of the lawless one, the, the man of lawlessness, the, the Antichrist, is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. This man will be doing false signs and wonders through the power of Satan. That's what's going on here, I believe, in, in, in Exodus. These magicians are doing false signs and wonders by the power of Satan. It's just a counterfeit. And it's used to deceive, to corrupt, to get the church off track of believing the true gospel. So Satan is a master manipulator. He's a distorter. He's a counterfeiter. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says this, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Now, just keep that, Noah, keep that screen up there for a moment. Two words in that passage of Scripture, outwitted and designs. Outwitted. The word outwitted means that Satan wants to rob you. Satan wants to defraud you. Satan wants to cheat you. He has this insatiable desire to take as much from you as he can. He wants to outwit you by fraud. And then he has designs in which he does that. He has schemes, the Bible says. He's got fiery darts. 
Now, I don't know exactly what these schemes are, these fiery darts are, these methods, but I believe that Satan's very good at individualizing those to your moment of weakness. Here's the issue. Satan's not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. He's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere present. He can't read your mind. But Satan and his demons have had thousands of years of observing human behavior, and they know where the weaknesses are because they've seen it over and over again. So they will use designs. They will use methods. They will use schemes. They will use fiery darts to try to deceive you. 2 Corinthians 11.3 I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Eve was deceived. Paul says, I don't want you to be deceived like Eve was. Paul also says in 1 Timothy 4.1 Now, the Spirit expressly says that in Later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits in the teaching of demons. Demonic teaching. So Satan has demonic teachings. He has schemes. He has methods. He has deception. He has fiery darts. And so, so what do you do so you're not led astray? That you don't fall into this deceptive teaching. That you're not deceived. Because he wants to deceive with counterfeits. What do you do? Well, the Bible says you need to saturate, and that's a key word there, saturate your heart and mind in the Scriptures. Now, when I say saturate, what, is that? what image comes to your mind when I say saturate? Soak. So go take a bath with your Bible and come out all wrinkly. That's really what needs to happen. You are so saturated in the Scriptures that you have a discerning heart. So when the counterfeits come, you, you, you don't fall for them because you've got the word of God in your heart. Hebrews 5.14 says this. Solid food is for the mature, for those ha who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You need to have your powers of discernment trained. You need to, to learn to be discerning, and, and that's something that needs to be trained. And how do, you, how do you learn that? By saturating yourself in the Scriptures. Now, at this point, you may be a little depressed. Wow, this is a great sermon, Pastor Sean. It's all about the devil. What have we seen so far? Satan is alive and well. He's crafty, he's a father of lies, he's the great red dragon, he's, he's deceptive, he's got schemes, he's a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, he's trying to counterfeit, he's trying to destroy, he's, he's blinding the minds of unbelievers, he's doing all these types of things. So where's the hope in this? Well, here's reality four, which is the greatest hope. Jesus conquered Satan on the cross and will one day destroy him in the lake of fire. Do you know Satan's read the Bible? You can't tell me Satan hasn't read Revelation 20. He knows the end. He knows he will be thrown in the lake of fire. So what does he do? Because he knows the end of the story, he's fighting like H-E-L double hockey sticks, to pardon the expression, because that's where he's from. He's fighting like that to destroy the church. Satan never gets the last laugh, though. What happens here in verse 12? Aaron's staff swallowed up their 
steps. See, the major theme of Exodus is the great I am, the Lord, the God of Israel. He's sovereign above all false gods, and he's going to win in the end. So here's the thing. Satan can deceive. Satan can blind. Satan can attack. Satan can throw darts. Satan can perform counterfeit miracles, but he never has the power to overrule a sovereign God. Satan is a created being. He can only do what God sovereignly permits him to do. He can never go beyond God's sovereign decree. Now, these magicians can only imitate God's power up to a point, as we will see. After the third miracle, they're like, we can't go any further. Satan can only counterfeit God up to a point. He does not have unlimited power. He can only counterfeit, but never conquer. So this little scene here where Aaron swallows up the magician's staff is a picture of how Jesus has conquered Satan on the cross. Think about the imagery there. It's no, it's no coincidence that the wording used there is that Aaron's staff swallowed up. Swallowed. What does Paul say? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 54 through 57. When the perishable puts on imperishable, that's the twinkling of the eye, when we get our new bodies, when we get to heaven. And the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that's written, death is what? Swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through the victory on the cross, Jesus has swallowed up death and sin and Satan. He swallowed it up. Colossians 2, 14 through 15. By canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands... This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. Through the victory on the cross, Jesus disarmed Satan. Put him to public shame. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, this is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Through his victory on the cross, Jesus destroyed the devil and bought us out of slavery, lifelong slavery. 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, you may think this sounds like the devil shouldn't have any power. Don't ask me why God did it, but the Bible teaches that Satan has been thrown down as the great red dragon, and he knows that his time is short. 
And because his time is short, he's going to do everything in his power to devour. But not unlimited power. He can't go beyond the sovereign leash that God has him on. If he goes too far, God yanks him back. And there will come a day where he will be ultimately and finally destroyed. But until that day, God gives Satan permission to engage in spiritual warfare. After Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God pronounced a curse upon Satan. It's the very first time in the Bible that the Gospels announced. Genesis 3.15. God says, I will put enmity, I'll put warfare, I'll put, I'll put hostility between you, Satan, and the woman. Between your offspring, Satan, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He shall bruise your head. Who's the he? God says one day there's going to come a Messiah who's going to crush Satan. That's announced from the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 3.15. There's going to come a future Messiah who's going to crush the head of Satan, rendering him powerless to overthrow God's kingdom. How does Paul end Romans 16? The end of Romans, Romans 16.20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. God will soon crush Satan under our feet. What does it look like? Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan knows that, so he's hell-bent on doing as much damage as he can in the meantime. Because he hates God, he hates you, he hates the gospel, and he hates God's church. And he's a real enemy. And we're in a real battle. But he does not have absolute power. So how do you respond to the crushing of Satan, the fact that he will be thrown into the lake of fire on that final day, well, you rest and you rejoice in Christ's ultimate victory. Because here's the issue. If you are a true child of God, Satan can't have you. He can't have you. He may think he can have you. He can try to attack you, but he cannot have you. You are in the grip of Jesus Christ and you can't be taken out. What does Jesus himself say in John 10, 28 and 29? Listen to Jesus. I give them eternal life, and they will never, no, not ever, ever perish. That's a double negative in the Greek language. I give them eternal life. They will never, ever perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. You can't be snatched out of the hand of Jesus by Satan. He may try, but he cannot. Because you're in the double grip of Jesus and the Father. And he holds you. Romans 8, 35-39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's a great rhetorical question. Paul, why don't you give us the answer? Shall tribulation 
or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. We sang it earlier. Through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, Satan's a fallen angel, nor rulers, he's the prince of the power of this world, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Satan's real. Spiritual warfare is real. The battle may be brutal at times. The temptation and the struggle with sin may be excruciatingly painful. But you can rest and rejoice that the ultimate king, Jesus, has swallowed up death, sin, and Satan through the power of his cross and his resurrection. And I can think of no better truth to celebrate on the heels of Thanksgiving, can you? So would you be thankful today for the decisive victory that Jesus won over the power of the enemy, over death, over sin, over the devil. It's been swallowed up. I love the imagery. It's been swallowed up. Death, where's your sting? Death, where's your victory? Thanks be to God. We have the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Rest secure in that victory. Walk out here today in the victory that all you have to do is stand in the truth. The battle's been won. Christ won it for you. Stand in his victory. Stand with his armor. And when the devil comes to you, resist him and he will flee from you and realize that his final destiny is the lake of fire. Your final destiny is with heaven and nothing can snatch you out of the hand of your father. Let me ask you to bow your heads and let's spend some time in prayer this morning. Thankful that we are more than conquerors. Because of your victory. Jesus, you don't call us to win the victory because you already won it for us on the cross. You just call us to stand in what you've won for us. To hold on to the truth, to put on the full armor of God, to resist the devil. Lord, help us to be aware of our enemy. Help us to be aware of the darts and the schemes and the methods and the deception. But Lord, let us never live in fear or despair that somehow the enemy can have us because we're in your grip. We're in your hand. Nothing can separate us from your love. Lord, I do pray a special prayer this morning for those that may be engaged in some type of spiritual warfare. Lord, we sometimes don't understand all the ins and outs of it, but there may be some here this morning that are experiencing a spiritual battle. Lord, would you give them hope? Would you give them security? Would you help them rest in the gospel? And thank you, Jesus, that you are the victor. Help us to walk out of here encouraged. Help us to walk out of here emboldened in your power and in your grace to face whatever onslaughts might come as we leave this place today because we know they will come. 
There's great comfort in being in the house of worship together, but it's when we walk out of the house of worship and we face the world, the flesh, and the devil that the onslaughts come, and that's when we definitely need your grace, Lord. So would you give us grace as we leave this place today? We ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.